Well, good morning, church. My name is Chad, and if I haven't got to meet you, I'd like to welcome you to the journey this morning and uh, as we open up God's Word. And so as I was preparing this week, um, I was reminded that tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of when I was presented to you guys as a candidate, uh, as staff here. And so, again, I want to take this opportunity to say thank you for how you've embraced me. Uh, we've loved our time here and um, look forward to, to many more years with you guys. But um, even though I've been here for a year, some of you may not be totally familiar with all of my background. And so um, I went to school hoping to learn something productive, some skill beneficial to society. Many of you all did the same thing, whether that was at college or a trade or something. You learned to be a doctor. You learned to be a teacher, a welder, plumber. You might have even gone into the military. Uh, but you learned some skill that's good for society. Me. I went to the school at the University of Louisville where I was a history major. And so what that should tell you about my skill set is that I'm really good at reading. And if you put a book in front of me, like I can read it if it's in English. <laughs> so I'm also really good at writing. And so like week in and week out, like all I did was write. I read and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And so like I was writing about stuff like why George Washington, he used a tactical strategy of a war of post against the British, right? I could do that day after day. I could cram two pages worth of thoughts into 15 and not break a sweat. And so like I graduated, I graduated with a BA, a Bachelor of Arts, and I don't know how I didn't get a BS, which is a Bachelor in Science. So, when I graduated, I um, decided I don't know that I can really work in a history field. There weren't many jobs for history. And so I decided, like, I probably need to go back to school and I need to learn something else. And so I decided maybe I'll get a master's in education. And so I start my classes, and my very first professor, Dr. Lasky, she wanted to meet with everyone after their first paper. And so I thought, okay, this will be a piece of cake. I'm a really good writer. This, this will be a breeze. So uh, I wrote this beautiful paper on educational program assessment. Like, it was just amazing. And so I go into her office, and I sit down in this chair, and she's sitting across from me. She's sitting on a giant red exercise ball because she said that was good for her core. I don't know why. But she starts to go over my paper, and basically the, the polite message she told me is, too much, I don't care. And so she said, I can tell that you, you came from a different background from education, and so let me tell you how I want you to write. We have a very specific format in education. I said, okay. She said, there's three components. Number one, you tell them what you're going to say. Number two, you say it. And then number three, you tell them what you've just said. And so it's simple, it's to the point, it's repetitive, it's redundant, and it made me want to jump off a cliff. So how does that relate to what we're talking about today? So today, we only have one point. We only have one point of application. And some of you are like, sweet, we're going to get done early. I would like to remind you we're at the journey. Brevity is not one of our core values. But I'm going to give you this application up front, and it's in the form of a question. Have you put your faith in Jesus 
and surrendered your life to him. That is all that we are going to talk about today. And then when we're done at the end, I'm going to ask you that same question. It's simple, it's redundant, but it's of vital importance. And each of us, we have to wrestle with that question. So if you have your copy of God's Word, turn with me to John chapter 1. So John chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 9 through 13. And so this is what God's word says. John says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your gift of salvation. We thank you that you have stepped down and broke into this world to bring salvation to us through your grace. And as we've marveled through your work of creation, let us marvel more at the miracle of salvation that you offer freely to us. Let your word of salvation saturate our hearts today. Our desperate prayer is that your word would be preached, that your word would be received, that we would believe in your great name, and that sinners would be brought from death to life. So we give you all the glory. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. So if you have been here, I want to recap just a little bit what we have seen in the first chapter of John, uh, because he is presented some incredible truths about who Jesus is. And so these truths, they are foundational. And our understanding of salvation, they have to be rooted in these truths. So at the start, we saw that Jesus is the Word. He is the Logos. And so to the Greeks, this communicated that he was the unifying force of the universe. And to the Jews, this meant that he was the very Word of God. And so taken together, All of that means that Jesus is the ultimate reality in which everything depends. We've seen that Jesus is God, that he was not created, that he has always existed, that he did not become God, that he is not separate from God, but he is God. And through Jesus, the whole universe and everything in it was created. And even as this creation reveals the glory, the bigness, the vastness of God, We've seen that that same God, he pursues us. He's calling out to us. And to each of us, he offers his salvation. And that's where we're going to focus our energies today. So look with me again at verse 9. John says, There was this true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And so we have this true light. It's come into the world, and this refers to the incarnation of Jesus. This draws on the motifs that we see in Genesis, in the creation story. And as that true light coming into the world, Jesus brings several things. He brings true knowledge to this dark world. He brings moral purity because our understanding of morality is rooted in the character of God. Good and evil aren't just arbitrary choices. Good is good because that's who God is. And God is good, and our sense of morality is found in who God has revealed himself to be. And so Jesus brings that moral purity into the world. 
He also brings the very presence of God because he is God, as we saw in John 1. So as the light comes into the world, it enlightens every man. And so we want to be careful with what this is saying and what it is not saying first. So this is not a universal salvation from God that everyone on the face of the earth will be saved, regardless of what they believe. So we want to be clear about that. Because unfortunately, if you go out from here, inevitably you'll talk to some people, even here in southern Illinois, that will say, man, everyone's going to heaven. It's just about your sincerity of belief. Or how could a loving God send someone to hell? But that's not what the entirety of Scripture teaches us. And even in the immediate context, which we'll see in just a moment, John is not teaching a universalism that we're all going going to make it to heaven. And so instead, John here is referring to general revelation, or what we would call objective revelation. And so as the true light, Christ has always sought to make himself known. He has made himself known to us through creation. And so look at Romans chapter 1, 18 through 20. This will be on the screen. And so this is how Paul describes what general revelation is. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident. It's evident within them. For God made it evident. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived, being understood by what has been made, so that they are without excuse." So what does that mean? And so look at how John MacArthur describes this general revelation. So this will be on the screen as well. He says, through God's sovereign power, every person has enough light to be responsible. God has planted his knowledge in man through general revelation in creation and conscience. The result of general revelation, however, does not produce salvation. That's what we're talking about but either leads to the complete light of Jesus Christ or produces condemnation in those who reject such light. So Jesus, the true light, makes himself known and he offers himself to everyone. And the whole point of that revelation, him coming into the world, is to point to our need for salvation. And this light forces a distinction. It forces us into that choice that MacArthur just talked about. Right? So look with me at verse 10. It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And so he was in the world. Jesus was in the world. He stepped down into it through the incarnation. The world was made through him. We saw this in Colossians 1. We've talked about this a lot, where he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him, All things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So the world was created through Jesus and for Jesus. But this is not just a mere repetition of what we saw in verses 1 through 3 that we talked about a couple weeks ago. The emphasis there was on Christ's divinity and on his role in creation. But here, in verse 10, the emphasis is on man's rejection of the light, the true light. 
that he was in the world, God was in the world, God incarnate, that he made the world and everything in it, and he's made even us. But in our rebellion and sin, we didn't recognize him. We didn't know him. We treated him with indifference. The created, the created things dismissed the creator. And so if you remember from a couple weeks ago, we had a video with Louis Giglio, and he talks about how sin puffs us off, puffs us up, and that distorts our perception, our, our perspective on who God is. God being the creator, created the vastness of the universe and yet holds it in the palm of his hand. And we're just such a small part of that. And what sin does is that, that flips our perspective, that distorts us, that distorts our perception of God. And we fail to recognize his greatness and consequently, we fail to realize that he's pursuing us. The creator God is pursuing us. So in verse 10, John has all of humanity in scope, that we, we didn't know him, that we didn't recognize him. But in verse 11, John narrows his scope. He says, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. So Jesus came to his own. And so here, this can be translated that he came home. So who did he come home to? He came home to the covenant people of God. He came to the people of Israel, to the very people who were eagerly expecting him. We spent some time going through Malachi, and they're expecting, they're looking forward to the Messiah, right? Jesus came to those who possessed the scriptures that testified to his coming. And this is something that we see echoed throughout the New Testament. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, there he's referring to the Old Testament here, he said, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. That sounds familiar. And look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, just a couple of verses before what we read previously. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so we want to be clear that this doesn't mean that Jews are saved first before non-Jews, but that God revealed himself. He revealed his plan of salvation through the Old Testament that the whole of the Old Testament was pointing to the coming of Jesus, our salvation through Jesus, and that was given to the Jews. But look at the difference in the response between verse 10 and verse 11, between how the world responded and how the Jews responded. So in verse 10, it says that the world did not know Jesus. The world did not recognize him. But in verse 11, it says that Israel did not receive him. And so that word receive, that communicates, that means to enter in to an intimate relationship. It's the same word that we see in Matthew chapter 1 when it talks about Joseph taking Mary as his wife. And so hold on to that thought for just a minute. But by not receiving him... This was a decisive act of rejection on the part of Israel. The Jews, because they didn't receive him, because they rejected him, they believed that salvation belonged to them by their birthright. So hold on to that thought too. 
So we're going to come back to that. So look with me now at verse 12. John writes, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So, we see that the world didn't know him, but that Israel did not receive him. But we also see that there are those that do receive him, that there are those who do believe in him. So what what does that mean? And so we just talked about that that word to receive, that means to take into intimate relationship. That's like a marriage relationship. And so this means more than just a simple intellectual knowledge, right? That salvation is more than saying a prayer. It's more than taking a class, right? It's the type of relationship that has bearing on our life. And so like I know my professor, Dr. Lasky, I know her, but she has no bearing on my life whatsoever anymore. But I know my wife, right? And that marriage, my marriage to Heidi, that affects every single aspect of my life. It has consequential bearing on how I live. I can't separate who I am from my marriage. If I go out of here and I live my life like I'm not married, guess what? I have big problems at home. And so this is similar to what Matthew, in Matthew 13, when he's reciting the parable of the sower, where Jesus is teaching about the farmer who goes and scatters seed. He scatters some, uh, and some of it lands on the path, and the birds come and they snatch it. Some sprouts up quickly, but it withers because it has no root. Some springs up, but it's choked out by thorns. But then some lands in good soil, right? And it bears fruit 30, 60, 100 times the yield. And so what Jesus is saying there is that salvation is hearing the word. It is understanding the word, and it's producing fruit. Jesus is teaching us that it's not just about our profession of faith, our saying of faith, but it's do we possess it? Do we have possession of faith? It is more than just saying, I believe, and then walking out of here, living however I want to live without yielding my life to him. So again, in verse 12, John says that we receive him. It also says that we believe in his name. So what does that mean? In the ancient world, that concept of name, that represents the entire person or the personality. So in believing in the name of Jesus, we are trusting by faith in the entire work and person of Jesus, that he is who he has revealed himself to be in his word. And when we believe by faith in his name, the Greek there implies this concept of possession. So when we believe, we are yielding and we are submitting our lives to him as his possession. So again, this is a relationship that has bearing on our life. It's fruit being produced in our life. And so when we believe in faith, what he has revealed about himself, what is it that we believe? That's what we call the gospel. And so what is this gospel? Micah laid that out perfectly as we had communion. But look on the screen at what Gray Sutantando says. He says, The gospel is the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. We've talked a lot about God incarnate. 
and mediator of the covenant of grace, who is united with his people by the Spirit through faith to forgive sin and reconcile to God, thus justifying, sanctifying, and adopting them. And we're going to come back to adoption here in a minute. But adopting them to the hope of eternal life with God in the new creation with resurrected bodies. And so in believing this gospel in faith, we believe that in his incarnation, that he joined himself to us to become our mediator. And what is a mediator? A mediator is someone that stands in between, that's in between us and God. We couldn't get to God on our own. And so Jesus stands in the middle, mediates for us, and brings us to God. That in his sinless life, he established the righteous record that God's law demands. It's a law that we couldn't keep. That in his death, that he took our place, that he was our substitute, bearing our curse and rendering satisfaction to God. And that in his resurrection, he entered the age to come and takes us with him to newness of life. And so when we believe this gospel, when we yield our lives to him, God grants us salvation. And so what do we mean by salvation? Fred Zaspel describes it this way. He says, salvation, as the term implies, is rescue. It's rescue from hell, but also from sin itself, its power, and ultimately, its very presence. And so if salvation is our rescue, what does that rescue accomplish? It accomplishes redemption, that we are liberated by the payment of Christ's death on the cross, that we have, res that we have rescue through forgiveness, that our debt of sin is canceled, the debt having been paid in full by Christ's redeeming death that we have justification, that we are declared righteous before God by virtue of his substitutionary death and his gift of righteousness, that we have reconciliation, that we are no longer enemies with God, but we now have fellowship with him, and that we have adoption, that we are adopted, we are united with Christ, becoming his children. And so we see this adoption in verse 12. And again, adoption, it's significant. This is not a casual relationship. It's an intentional relationship. There's new status. There are new rights. And this is something that we've seen a lot in this church. We've had children adopted out of foster care. We have children who have been adopted from overseas, right? And that did not happen by accident. Those children were pulled from an old way of life, and they are given a new life. They don't have to go back to that old life. They don't live that old life anymore. But here's the most important thing about adoption. You're not born with it. Adoption is not a birthright. It has to be granted just like a judge in an adoption hearing. And so to understand adoption as God's children, we must understand that receiving Jesus that entering into an intimate relationship with him, that is a necessary and absolute and non-negotiable requirement. To be adopted by God, we must receive him. We must believe in his name. And it's to those that he gives the right to become children of God. 
And so why is this such a big deal? Look again at verse 12 and verse 13. It says, He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So John is saying that those who are born, meaning those who have received salvation, those who have received Jesus and believe in his name, those who have been adopted by God, they are not born of blood or the will of flesh or the will of man. So what does that mean? It means that we're not born into God's family, meaning our physical birth. We are not saved by our birthright. And we are not saved because of who we are, who our parents are, who our family is. And so this links back up to verse 11, where the Jews, Christ's own, did not receive him. They believed that their heritage was automatically linked to their salvation, that they were saved by default, that because they were children of Abraham, they believed that the Lord's salvation was their birthright. And so Jesus will actually rebuke the Jewish religious leaders for this very thing later on in John chapter 8. We will get to that in September of 2027. And so we hope that you will make plans to join us then. But we must remember that salvation, being adopted by God, only comes through faith, believing the gospel and receiving him and nothing else. And so if salvation is not the will of man, then where does it originate? So look at how John ends verse 13. He says, those who were born not of the will of man, but of God. And so I want to pause here for just a moment, because when we start to talk about God's will and salvation, sometimes we have a tendency to tense up. Some of us may want to gear up for a battle of doctrine, but I want us to avoid that today. We want to examine what John here is teaching us. And so just to be clear, I want want you to know that this is a particular issue that the journey holds as an open-handed issue, meaning that we don't dictate how uh, we should interpret this particular verse as as concrete. But I don't want to use that as a cop-out. Let's wrestle with this as it appears in the text. So what does it mean when John says that we are born that we are saved by the will of God. It means that the entire work of salvation, that is entirely the work of the Lord, that he does the work, that he saves us, he pursues us, he chooses us, we cannot save ourselves. Nothing human can bring about new birth. We cannot bring about life from our death that salvation is a miracle that only God can perform. And so John says that we are saved through the will of God, and this is an emphasis that we see all throughout Scripture, that we see throughout the New Testament. And so look with me at what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren, many brothers, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 
1.3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So throughout Scripture, we have a clear emphasis on God's initiative in salvation. But we always have the question, what about our free will? What about our choice? So look at what John says later on in John chapter 20. He says, So then, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, meaning everything that he has written, these have been written so that, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. Paul writes, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In 2 Peter 3.9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So we have this emphasis on God's initiative. We also have this clear emphasis on our responsibility our call to respond, and so these are both clear throughout the Bible. And a lot of ink has been spilled trying to reconcile these two concepts into a nice little package. But what I want for us to remember for today is there's tension here, and that's okay. But because there's tension, we also want to remember that these things don't have to be mutually exclusive. I'd hope that we would see them more as a both and rather than an either or, that we don't have to declare one as unequivocally right and the other unequivocally wrong in order for us to understand the beauty of the gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we can't save ourselves, but that God extends his grace to us. And so regardless of where we may lean on this particular issue, what we want to see through John is that the most important thing is that those who receive the word, they are identical with those who believe in his name, and they are identical with those who are born of God. They're all the same. And so I like how Russell Moore sums all of this together. And so this will be on the screen. He says that Calvinism and Arminianism, so you have God's initiative versus man's initiative, he says they are both addressing abstractions about the mechanics, for lack of a better word, of how God works in a way that the Bible doesn't give a lot of attention to, meaning we don't really know how these two concepts are reconciled. And so he writes, he says, where the scriptures are talking about predestination or election, it is never in the context of you might not really be saved even though you've come to faith in Christ because you might not be one of the elect. So he's saying we're never going to get to heaven if we have lived a life where we've accepted Christ, we've walked with him, we've lived with him, and there be some divine switcheroo. That's not what the Bible teaches us here. And so he writes, nor is it an emphasis on the identity of the church. Instead, it's explaining something, which is to say, if you're in the church of Ephesus and you're a Gentile, not a Jew, 
you're not accidentally here. You didn't sort of find yourself here in someone else's story, meaning a Jewish story. You have a strong emphasis on it's by God's grace that you receive anything that you receive. And you also have a really strong emphasis on the call to decision, the call to come to Christ, and that Jesus will receive whoever comes to him. And so as we consider what it means to be born of God, what it means to receive and believe Jesus, let's reflect on the glory of the gospel, that good news that we did not recognize him, that our sin separated us from him, that we need rescue from our sin, that we cannot save ourselves, that God being rich in mercy stepped down into this world and he pursued us, that Jesus took our place on the cross and paid our penalty, that he was raised from the dead in order to bring us new life and to adopt us as children of God. And so this is the gospel that is articulated so beautifully in Ephesians chapter 2, which Melise read earlier, where Paul writes, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were made nature... By, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. So as we come to the end of our time here today, I told you at the beginning that we were going to talk about salvation. And we've done that a lot. And so I want to ask again, have you put your faith in Jesus and surrendered your life to him? Have you believed in his name and received him in intimate fellowship, in intimate relationship? And this is the most important question we'll ever have to answer. And so to this question, to this gospel, there are only two options. We either receive Jesus or we reject him. And so I want to be abundantly clear about what the gospel and salvation are. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Just as we've talked about today, it is believing in his name. It is receiving Jesus. It is walking in intimate relationship with the God of the universe. It is hearing the word. It is understanding the word. 
and the word producing fruit in our lives. It means that our life is not our own and that the gospel has bearing on every single aspect of our life. And so I also want to be clear on what the gospel is not. It is not just believing in God, believing in heaven, believing in a big guy upstairs. It is not being good people and having good morals. It is not attending church or just being here in this room, being here regularly. It is not who your family is or doesn't care if your grandpa was a preacher. It is not that you believe there should be prayer in school. It's not that you vote pro-life. And I want to press in here in just a little bit and make us a little uncomfortable, if you'll allow. Because we are surrounded by Jesus here in Southern Illinois. We know about Jesus, but do we really know him? And that's my fear for even some of us in this room, that when we're asked why we're a Christian, we would give a response like I just gave. We would give our mental assent and say, yep, I believe, but it makes no difference in our life. That there's no fruit in how we live. And so if that's us, if we're trusting in something other than, than the grace of God for our salvation, we're no different than the people of Israel who were trusting in their own birthright that thought just because they were alive meant that they were saved. That we think that salvation is ours because of who we are or what we do, not because of God's grace. That I'm good enough because of X, Y, or Z, so I don't need to receive him, and I really don't need to walk with him. And so if that's you, if I'm hitting on a nerve, I have a question. Why are you here? Why are you here pretending there is a middle road, that there's another choice? If you're going to walk out of here saying that you believe in Jesus, and it doesn't make any difference in your life, why are you even here? And if that's the case, I hope you would consider whether or not you actually possess faith, or are you merely just professing it? Because the gospel is clear. We either receive him or we reject him. And the gospel changes us when we believe. There is no other way. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so like Paul, I beg you, I beg you today, come to faith and be reconciled to Jesus. So stand and pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your glorious gospel and we marvel at your salvation. We thank you that you are the true light, that you have pursued us, that you have rescued us, that you have adopted us. And we thank you for saving us when we could not save ourselves. And so Lord, I pray for those who have not received you. I pray that your grace would overwhelm them today. I pray that your grace would call them from death to life. And so, Lord, we give you all the glory. 
and ask that you have your way in this place. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.